Most Awakened Podcast, a no-nonsense approach to spirituality with your hosts, Brittany Hartley and Bill Reed. Here we dive deep into the wisdom traditions while acknowledging insightful breakthroughs in science, psychology, and human development. Our goal is to explore the good life and the very best of spirituality, no-nonsense required. Check us out at almostawaken.org, where you can check out past episodes, make a donation, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources we shared. And now, today's podcast episode. Well, well. How are you, Britt Hartley? Good. How are you? I am doing so good. We just got back from Vegas. I've got a daughter from California in town with uh, our our third grandchild. And uh, me and some most of my kids and th- all three of my grandchildren hung out in Vegas with me and my wife uh, last three days or so and uh, had a great time. We it walked the strip a little bit, went to the M&M store, went to the Coke store there on the strip and did the taste around the world where you try like mm-hmm. 16 different Cokes. And mm-hmm. some and of those I, are enjoyable. I made myself sick because I wanted to try every mm. one. <laughs> some of those aren't that good. No, they're not that good. <laughs> no, I don't know why they're drinking that over there, wherever they're at. There's like a whole section from like Indonesia or the Philippines. And yeah. I was like, I don't have the palate for this at all. One was uh, something plum, but it tasted like uh, barbecue sauce, maybe. And it mm. was, yeah, Mm-mm. not that great. No, I'm just, that's one of the many Mormon things that I, well, maybe not so many, but one one of the Mormon things that I took with me is just, just give me a straight up Diet Coke. And you're good to go, huh? And I'm good to go. Yeah. Love it. <laughs> so love I have it, two things it. for you, friend. Please. First of all, I found a new term that I haven't used before. You probably already know this. <clears throat> but I found, you know, on this podcast, we talk so much about, you know, the science behind religion and spirituality. And I found a new term. And the second I heard it, I was like, ooh, Bill would love this. Mm. And it's called the incubation effect. Have you heard this one? No. Tell me more about okay. this. Okay. I'm so excited. Okay. So they actually have a term for this, and it's the incubation effect refers to the phenomenon that when you're confronted with an unsolvable problem, you temporarily put it aside and switch to a completely irrelevant task, and that is beneficial for finding the solution to your first problem. So it's basically this idea that if you start working on a problem and you don't get to an answer, the best thing to do is do something else, let your subconscious work on it, And then after a while, your subconscious will throw in the answer to the problem into your conscious mind, and it will feel like it came out of nowhere. And so they have like a term for this, and this is like every, I lost my keys, and then the idea came into my mind, you know, story. And I thought that it was so nice to like have an actual term for that. I like just, I like the idea that you're just wasting your time if you don't have a solution at the moment, and you just stand with a project that can't move. So you're better off moving on to something else anyway. And I remember being in college and whenever I would learn a new word in one class, it seemed like that word was needed or came in handy uh, or was used by a teacher in a class, like either later that day or the very next day. And I don't, I don't know what that is, if that's just coincidence, but that happened a hundred times during my time in college where I learned some word in my you know, geology class and mm. took it over to my English class. And then the teacher used that word for the first time that day. And it 
made the comprehension a little easier. But anyway. But Ed, you can see how like a religious person would think like, hey, I actually get insight, like things pop into my brain and it's like the answer to the problem or whatever. And like, it's nice to have like a, you know, psychological term for this so that we don't have to get into nonsense areas. It's just me, my mind and the Holy Ghost. Yes, the subconscious literally will just give yeah. revelation to your conscious mind. <laughs> Isn't that weird how that works for all humans? Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah, strange. Second thing is, so everybody knows that I had knee surgery two weeks ago. I'm I'm doing okay. I'm off, I'm off pain meds. I'm doing fine. But I was bored just laying in my bed all day. And so I joined TikTok, which is mm. just the wild, wild west. I've never been on TikTok before. Um, so if you want to find me on TikTok, you can do that. And I post, you know, things that we talk about on this podcast. And as to be expected, I get a lot of pushback from religious people who tell me that I'm going to hell. And then also atheists who say, like, you know, religion is the source of all evil. And I just get both just filling my inbox all day, every day. So it's just an insane place. But, you know, I was bored and it's something to do. And I found this guy who we're going to interview today named Kyle Bishop. And he, um, I was like, wow, this content is really good. Finally, there's another voice on TikTok that's saying like, hey, I know religion has its problems, but we can't, you know, this, this atheist, you know, outrage machine, we've got, there's got to be more to life than, than just being superior to everyone else and all of this content. And what about spirituality? And what about meaning of life? And, and I was like, yes. And then I looked into him and he used to be LDS. And so I know nothing more about this guy other than he, I really enjoyed his content on TikTok. And so I guess now it's time to bring on Kyle Bishop. Give me just a second to do that. And there we are. Hello, hello. Hi, Kyle. How's it It was going? interesting because Kyle let me know that uh, we had bumped uh, rub shoulders before at uh, a get together up in Salt Lake City area. And uh, uh, it's always cool when you're getting ready to talk to somebody and you find out you already know them. So I'm super excited, Kyle. Uh, glad to have you on. Thank you. Happy to be here. Sweet. All right. So Kyle, if you, if you wouldn't mind, I would just really love to hear like your faith journey story. I'm super interested in how you got to where you are today. So if yeah. you wouldn't mind, yeah, like five or 10 minutes, like tell me about your upbringing and maybe a faith, I'm guessing a faith transition in there somewhere. Like there give, was give one. me, give me the story. <laughs> I, I am dying to hear the story. Okay. Let's see. So I was born LDS and was just kind of brought up thinking that way. I was very safely nestled in the echo chamber that I uh, was raised in. My whole community was Mormon, which made leaving, you know, really awkward because it's it's like it's so insulated that when you leave something that is your entire community, it's like it's not an easy thing to leave. So let's see why I left. There's a lot of reasons, obviously, but uh, the thing that first pulled like the snag on the sweater that unraveled the whole thing was a girl I was dating, actually. I had just graduated BYU. Always starts with a girl. Always starts with a girl. And uh, we, so I had just moved out to California after being at BYU, graduated, and just hated my whole experience at BYU. I didn't click socially with the people and it just it was just such a weird culture to date in where everything was like 
it was just so focused in the church, which I mean, what was I asking for going to BYU? So that's kind of my own fault, but I didn't know what I didn't know at the time. Uh, but anyway, I, I went out there and to, to California, I met this girl and she was the most wonderful human that I had ever met. She was fantastic. And at the end of this relationship, uh, she told me, I went to the temple and I got a revelation that you're not the guy. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, I'm pretty cool. Like, and so it put me in this weird place where Ouch. I was like, okay. And I, this, this was the beginning of the end for me, even though I didn't know it at the time, because I could not wrap my mind around all the evil that goes unchecked by God in the world. And then God decides, you know, the moment to come out and speak to man, you know, to get, you know, come out specifically and do something that is like measurable, you know, like giving someone a, a revelation. And uh, like, why would he jump out of the bushes and blow his whistle on this relationship that has been so healthy? And I was like, okay, people murder children. God does nothing. Kyle wants to date so-and-so and then God jumps out of the bushes and he's blowing his whistle. And he's like, I, I cannot abide, you know? And I, that just, I could not mental gymnastic my brain around that, but I also didn't know what it meant at the time. It was just kind of like, you know, the first thread had been pulled. And then the longer I kind of just pulled on it, the more things kind of fell apart. So it all ended about, I think this was 20, this is like, 2019 January I was on a ski trip with some of my uh, LDS buddies in Canada and all of the shelf items the things that I had been repressing you know me knowing I didn't have a good argument to support the things that I believed eventually came to a head and you know how people talk about they have this overwhelming faith moment that causes them to believe in God that is just undeniable I had that exact same experience about God not existing like it was extremely powerful. I woke up at like two o'clock in the morning with my mind just rushing, just every, and it was the first time in my life, in my mind, I was actually debating for the atheist side. And it was a complete collapse of everything that I had believed. And it was like, I had this sense of assurity that it wasn't true. So you and had like, so like, this was like a dam that you'd been holding up and then like yeah. the dam broke and then like, boom yep. in your brain. Yep. Okay. The dam right. broke, the shelf broke. Yeah. And it was just, it was like, I was shaking. It was so powerful to me because I had finally like, like all the things that I had been like, nope, not addressing that and pushed it down into my subconscious. There was just no more space for me to do that. And then it just erupted. And I, just went through every argument that I had ever made for my beliefs and then looked at kind of, you know, the, the atheist argument for that, or just the counter argument. And then it all just, it all just crumbled right there. And that was like, so I had a moment when I became an atheist. And then the more I, I learned, the more I, I shifted from atheist more into anti-theist, which the distinction is basically that, you know, some atheists wish it were true. And an anti-theist absolutely does not like, I don't envy believers for their faith because I don't think there is a safe version of Mormonism. I don't believe there is a safe version of Christianity because the entire pretext upon which this system could make sense or be useful to somebody is that you first have to admit that you're absolute trash, that, you know, given if left to your own devices, you would run yourself off a cliff. You are inherently guilty of, of sin and there's something ugly about you. And you have to believe that in order for the, for a savior to be a relevant figure in the story. And the more that I learned about things, 
the more I, you know, just kind of shifted toward anti-theist. But initially I had left the church for about two, probably two years before I had read anything like the CES letter. So I left because of the way that I felt inside. And I, you know, I was, you know, stereotypical good Mormon boy, everything that contradicts the church or criticizes it, even if it's a completely fair criticism, is the devil. We don't go there. That's how you lose your faith, which turns out to be true. And uh, yeah, it was, so I, I left because of heart reasons. And then later, as I learned, I was able to kind of get my heart and my brain on the same page. And so I've noticed that a lot of people will kind of deconstruct from one side or the other, from the heart or from the head. And so as I have uh, kind of gone through my experience and have been out of it for so long, I've been able to see that they're like, if you only deconstruct from the heart perspective or only deconstruct from the head perspective, there's lingering issues that keep on like harming people long after they've left the faith. And long after, you know, like people say, yeah, I deconstructed all that like years ago, but then I'll have people in like my, the main people who I coach are people who are like thirties and, and up. And mainly it's, it's forties and up. And it's because people didn't realize that they, there was a lot of stuff that they hadn't really learned and so it's still kind of like manifests in ugly ways in their life. And they start to realize it, then they reach out. And so deconstruction is a very messy, complicated process because you're not fully aware of all the things that are going on inside of you until they start manifesting in, in, in ways that sabotage your life. And so anyway, that's that's something that I've I've learned. But can I, can uh, I jump in just for a second? So yeah, absolutely. One is that something you pointed out, which is that Christianity generally and the faith that we all came from specifically that you have to kind of start with this idea that you're broken and that in spite of what your brain tells you, there's better answers in the sacred text or in the authorities of that system. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I remember in my head at one point somewhere early on in my faith crisis, I just recognized that my, my inner intuition and my own goodness <clears throat> was better than the um than kind of that that low bar setting that they that the system had set for me and and it seemed pretty obvious that if i was left to my own devices i actually functioned way higher than if i trusted the system's yes. assessments assessment of me right mm -hmm. and uh, so i i just want to note that that there's some deep truth to what you said there and then i wanted to follow up with a question which was you're pointing at it. Faith crises are difficult. There's so much, there's so much to lose and there's so much that feels like it's being lost. I'm just curious on yours personally, like um, how, how emotional was your faith crisis or was it pretty, because you said it was one of the heart, not really one of logic or the head. It was more like, Hey, I don't feel good here. Yeah. I don't feel right here. How hard was your transition and, and deconstruction? So, you know, I feel like the hardest part of deconstructing is the relationships that become tense and sometimes you lose those relationships. Oftentimes you lose those relationships. And so, for example, one of the moments that I didn't realize at the time, but it had kind of like sparked a brush fire and it was only a matter of time for that, you know, fire to spread. And I was sitting in, uh, in Sunday school and the bishop's wife was giving this lesson on blacks and the priesthood. And she was basically like, yeah, like prophets are amazing. 
But then they introduced, you know, some things that like, you know, weren't great, you know, which was racism and all that. And then, you know, she goes over that part real quick. And then the rest of the lesson is like, but prophets are so amazing because they stopped that. I'm like, okay, so they, they like burned someone's house down, but they, you know, came at the last minute as like the last ember fell over and like put a bucket of water on it. And it's like, we're heroes. And I was like, what? And it, it, like, it was literally one of those moments where like it, it snapped me out of, of, you know, the, the typical, you know, zombie, you know, church mode. And I started looking around at people's facial expressions. I'm like, are people not realizing how absolutely asinine this woman's argument is to like, to like justify it. And it was pretty much just me. <laughs> so I can't tell you how many times I heard something over the pulpit and I just wanted like eye contact with anyone. And I just did this, yeah. you know, around the room and then just like, nope. Okay. We're all cool with this. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And because it's you, you start like gaslighting yourself. Like maybe it is me. Like maybe I'm not seeing something here. And that's like, it just the, the Olympic level mental gymnastics you have to do in order to justify the belief systems that you have without using rationality or morality. Because that was basically when it was checkmate for me. Because it's like, if, if it was only illogical, well, I could just magic wand of faith that all day long, you know, just, well, yeah, it doesn't look good from my point of view, but I know that I'm right deep inside because I feel it in my heart, therefore it's true. But when it was also a less moral system, then like what atheists were doing. And I was like, wait a minute, like that doesn't match the brochure. Like God's people are supposed to be like, you know, first of all, it's like we have all these scriptures of like, you know, open your mouth and it will be filled. You will teach with such power that people cannot disbelieve what you are saying, you know, and that implies, you know, there's a lot of logic backing up these arguments and there wasn't. <laughs> and, you know, it's like that, you know, that's what comes to, you know, the church, you know, magazines and stuff like that. But then like when I was on my mission, and I was teaching this woman who had just come to me and said, um, and I served in Taiwan, by the way. And there was this woman who said, hey, listen, like I've realized that uh, my husband who's been away in Thailand, who went out there to make money for us, you know, to support our family, it ended up not going well. And so now I, you know, working a tiny bit have had to, you know, support him financially, which was the complete opposite of what that situation was supposed to be like. And she's like, and I just found out that all the money I've been spending, you know, sending to him, he's been using on hookers. And she's like, I need a priesthood blessing. And I was like, well, fuck. <laughs> like, I don't know what your uh, your language uh, rules are. Okay, <laughs> cool. <Yeah. laughs> and so I'm sitting there as a missionary just like, oh, boy. And I was like, because I had given lots of priesthood blessings before. And I had kind of like gaslit myself into thinking, yeah, you definitely were led during that one. When I just wasn't. And I was like, okay, this is going to be the blessing because the need is so great. And this person is so desperate for help that a loving heavenly father could not possibly look on this person or me, even with all my flaws and not guide me as I give this person a blessing. So I anoint her with the oil. I put my hands on her head and I start talking nothing. And so I'm just like, well, it's, you know, if, yeah, you got to forgive people because, you know, that's a good thing. <laughs> And you also don't want to like keep yourself being in harm's way. So kind of find a balance there in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You know? And then I was just like, yeah, I didn't feel any help there. That was just me for sure. But then you just keep gaslighting yourself. And it's like, I don't know, maybe, maybe there's something in this plan where this person just needs to suffer more. And so I wasn't given the help that I needed in order to help this person who is suffering just like an out of this world amount of suffering. And uh, 
Yeah, that was that was one of the things that it, I'm forgetting where I was going with that story because ADHD is awesome. But uh... <laughs> there's a couple things, a um, couple threads there that I want to pick up on. Um, so I love this idea of like instead of like a come to Jesus moment, it was like an atheist <laughs> awakening, which I feel like is really interesting. It's like instead of come to Jesus, it's like a come to Christopher Hitchens moment. Yeah. And the most the most interesting thing I think. The most interesting argument from anti-theists for me is this idea, like you said, that that's, you know, some atheist agnostic or secular people just say, you know what, whatever people want to believe in their, you know, in the privacy, just leave them alone, right? Just leave them alone. And the interesting thing about the anti-theist argument is this idea that once you have that foundation, that there is a God and God can speak to certain people or whatever, whatever that foundation is, it's going to pop up other places. And so it is inherently dangerous. Right. And so this is what yeah. Christopher Hitchens talks a lot about. And I was thinking when you were saying that I was thinking like for Mormonism, there are a lot of people that are just like, you know, leave Mormonism alone. They are such nice people. They're doing good things. They're service minded, but then there'll be little things that will pop up into society. Like, you know, there'll be a QAnon thing. And it's like, when you look mm -hmm. at that, the Mormonism primed their brain to be able to really latch on to authority, conspiracy theory, other things, uh, external motivations, external morality. And so it's an interesting argument to say, not only be atheist, but be anti-theist because these beliefs don't just stay in your own home they're going to pop out in other places and affect society, which is interesting yeah. to think about. Yeah, absolutely. And I remembered where I was going with that. It was okay. basically that, that if, so I couldn't, I could only fathom that a ridiculous evil God would require his creations. He would put them into a scenario in which they had to choose to be less logical and less moral than other belief systems. And those were the people that were going to go to heaven. And I was like, I can't make sense of that. And so at that point, my fear of God completely diminished because I was like, Okay, like we, we talk all the time about how like God is this infinitely wise person and we're so dumb, you know, which is one of the, you know, one of the things you have to accept for Christianity to make sense because you're not going to be led by somebody that, you know, isn't perfect because then they may, then they mess up, which introduces the scenario in which mankind might be a better companion to have on your journey than God. And that's like the entire system completely crumbles. And so it's like, okay, so I need to be less logical think less critically and I need to wink at more, you know, suffering in the world. And that's what God wants me to be. I was like, if that is the God, which it clearly is in Christianity and Mormonism, there is no possible way that that God could look at me and say, you were wrong for what you did. Cause the whole concept of God is goodness. Like, like the, the, the brochure of what God is in basically any religion is this unfathomable, all consuming love and wisdom. And when no religion had that, and it was obvious that they had that, I mean, pick your holy book. They are all deeply misogynistic, deeply racist. I mean, Christ in the Bible, even, you know, he condones slavery, you know, submit to your masters guys. It's just like, what? And there's instances in the Bible where God is commanding rape and genocide and, you know, save the, you know, these kill all the men, women and children down there. But if there are any young women who haven't had sex before, keep them for yourselves. And it doesn't take a PhD to realize what that meant, given the context and the standard of living for a woman in that period of time. 
And so it's just like there, there's no, there's no argument. And so I will, if let's say I'm wrong and this God is real and this is how he rolls, it would be my absolute honor and pleasure to forever fight this monster of an entity. And that's which, that, which then makes Lucifer the good guy, right? The guy who's mm -hmm. like, man, this this plan isn't that great. Yeah, I mean, he was responsible for like good music, you know, rock and roll. Like all, all like he killed what eight people in the Bible, where God killed millions. It's just yeah. like the brochure here is just not matching what I thought it was going to be. Totally. And so that was that was rough for me to get my mind around. And eventually, I realized that I'm not crazy. It's mm -hmm. this ideology that is. For it's me, like, that. Yeah, Sorry, for me, for that disconnect was like, I just really struggled with the atonement. I was always trying to make sense of it. And I couldn't understand why if you screwed me over, I you could say sorry and I could forgive you without any like or I could just forgive you and just say it's fine. Like I'm over it and with nothing else happening. But if God needs something, you know, needs that violence in order to have that sin go away, then I can do something good that God can't. And I could never wrap my head around it when mm -hmm. I was inside of like, why can I forgive people without adding additional suffering and violence, but God couldn't. And isn't it good that I can forgive people without that? Then am I Bingo. better than God? Yep. And that, that was like, that was a mental, I never could mental gymnastics i really had a hard time with the sacrament and atonement when i was in for that reason mm -hmm. the whole idea of using you know using your mind and being logical and we could go off and kind of hit on christianity and how that works but the quick example is you're talking about that race lesson on a race and the priesthood yeah. in mormonism i feel like if i went into a, a mormon sunday school and it's, it's beginning of class we do the opening prayer now i've got 45 minutes ahead of me I write up on the chalkboard prophets, you know, and I say, all right, for the next 45 minutes, we're going to list all the amazing things that prophets have given us. And I think, I think within a couple of minutes of rapid fire, trying to name things off in a couple of minutes, the whole class realizes there's not much material here. Yeah. And, and so the exercise is to keep us away from that. And Christianity has a lot of those kinds of uh, arguments as well. But at least in Christianity, you have this idea that God's answering your prayers, he's working with you, whereas Mormonism really is, in some ways, focused more on the authorities that speak on behalf of God. And so Christianity has this idea like, oh, like God's walking with us, Christ is helping us every day. And people tend to kind of point out that feeling of being supported in their hardships as the thing that Christianity is doing for them. And so maybe it's a little more a little more uh, in the ether and not really tangible per se. Or like filling um, in a psychological easier. need there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of when everyone was super happy that the prophet was, you know, he's a heart surgeon, he's a scientist. And that's what we need in the modern world is someone who can Especially in COVID age of science. Yeah. And then yeah. COVID happens and the scientist. prophet says you should probably get vaccinated. And wherever you fall on that opinion, it was at least interesting that essentially the church body that was so excited to have a science prophet basically said, no, thank you. <laughs> you know, oh yeah. No, and, no. And what was, what no, was most fascinating, <laughs> what was most fascinating to me was the justifications that people would use. So my girlfriend at the time, her parents uh, were, are super like QAnon, you know, anti-vax. And they were like, well, like I could feel through the Holy spirit that when like he, and then when Russell M. Nelson, you know, made that announcement, that video, that like, he was looking at us in a way that said, I'm under duress. <laughs> and I was just right. like, there, there is no limit to the mental gymnastics that people 
will go through in order to keep their belief system, which they've built their entire life on, solid, strong, and true. Yeah. And that's it like that's that's just how the ego works. And it's funny because the arguments that Mormons use to support Mormonism are identical to the arguments that other religious believers of whatever religious belief has what they put out there. And it's the same. But when they use that argument, they're crazy and misled, you know, lost, possessed by Satan. But when you use the exact same argument, it's like, well, we're, we're right, though. So only we get to use it. And I was like, these religious double standards and logical fallacies are just so fully on display that one truly wonders how much you can deny and how much you like how much you have to bend reasoned logic and morality in order to make sense of these religious narratives and yeah. comes to a point if that's what god wants like toodaloo bro like i'll take hell like i will take the boiler room in hell and christopher yeah. hitchens will be there he will welcome me with open arms <laughs> it will be fantastic we're all going to be there so like <laughs> you know at least the company is going to be a lot better than going to be what's up on top so bring right. it on no, it was interesting that, you know, political Mormons who are on the political left have to kind of do this balance all the time of, of I think this is just politics here and I have a different, but it was really one of the first times in at least my lifetime that I remember where, where, you know, the doctrine was more centrist than the political right and how that happened was really interesting to watch. But let's yeah. jump back into deconstruction because what I really loved about your TikTok content um is what you were talking about. You mentioned it just really quickly, and I want to go into it, is about how people sometimes naively think, you know, myself included, that once you walk out of the church, like you're you're deconstructed, like you're done, right? You're enlightened yeah. or whatever the mm -hmm. thing is. Yeah. And like you're speaking to, yeah, what you're speaking to is something that I also work on with clients and also myself and on this podcast mm -hmm. is that all of that, um, scaffolding and wiring is still there. And so Bill mm -hmm. and I, you know, we talk about the bite model. We talk about how people will find a new prophet, you know, even if it's Sam Harris or they'll find a new kind of in group and out group that, you know, this is my safe group and this is the out group or all of those. So all of those kind of ideas are still operating in the brain and you're just kind of filling in, um, which really means that you're still not entirely free of the religion that you're deconstructing from because yeah. all of that scaffolding is still there. And the couple of years after faith deconstruction, you are um, more prone than other times, like more prone during that time than 20 yeah. years later to join another cult and not really know that you're doing that because it does it may or may not have a God or it may or may not be religious, but it's acting like a religion in your brain. So talk about kind of how you, like your own kind of deconstruction unraveling and then how you got into like deconstructing deconstruction coaching and helping other people through that process. Yeah, sure. So uh, I guess we'll answer that question in, in a few different ways. So one of them is that our subconscious mind is we're sitting in the pews every Sunday and, you know, every time we have, you know, scripture study, like it, it, it Mormonism and most religion in, to varying degrees infiltrate every aspect of your life. And so your subconscious mind is soaking in all of these messages for all of those years. And then, you know, you have a moment where you're like, oh, it's not real. And so consciously you may say, I don't believe this anymore. But your subconscious mind says, oh, yes, you do. So an example of this are atheists that I coach who are deeply afraid of burning in hell. 
Now, that doesn't make sense because consciously they don't believe in hell. So where is this fear of hell coming from? Is that it's been so deeply ingrained into their subconscious that you don't just get to choose your belief. You don't just get to choose away from it. You know, it's like if you walk in on, you know, your your spouse or your romantic partner cheating on you, you can't just close the door real quick and be like, nope, I choose to not believe that. You know, you can pretend that you do, but like that's not how belief works. And so uh, another example of this is I had this woman who uh, who I was coaching. This is before I came into the deconstruction phase. Um, of kind of where I am now in coaching. And she had had a really rough go in romantic relationships and had just like, you know, stayed away from dating for a lot of years and she wanted to get back into it. And so I kind of asked myself, what does this person think about love? Like, how can I kind of understand where this person is coming from? And so I said, what do you think about love? And, you know, she talked about how love is oxygen. It's the reason why we're here. It's what makes all the suffering, you know, worthwhile at least you know compensates for it so that we don't just you know give up on life and i was like okay cool so this person believes in love and then i said so when's the last time that you opened yourself up to love went on a date got on a dating app you know anything like that and she's like oh hell no like i don't do that i was like that's very interesting because consciously you just told me what you believe about love and what you actually believe about love is the exact opposite of what you just told me and so it's helping people to realize that they're you know, they still have hooks in them from the past. And those can be about pain, you know, kind of heart related issues, or they can be about head related issues, like the atheist who is afraid of burning in hell. And so the atheist who is burning in hell, for example, or who is afraid that he's going to be burning in hell, he on some level still believes the narrative of the church. And so he has more to deconstruct from the head and so, and that's, that a lot oftentimes is what people don't deconstruct because it's like, oh, I hate this. It's so cringy, like, Ugh, no. And then they leave, but still banging around in their brain are all these toxic, unhealthy, unsupported ideas. And so I help people, you know, based on whatever's causing them pain, that's how you find what is still down there in the abyss of your subconscious mind. And like, you know, it's like, if somebody has, you know, like this atheist who's afraid of burning in hell, I'm like, okay, so will you still believe in hell? Then he's like, no, I don't. I'm like, no, you do. You do. And so the more that we go into hell and the more that we address, you know, how little evidence, in fact, the complete absence of any empirical evidence whatsoever of there being a heaven or hell, the more that we just kind of touch on that, we kind of redirect the neural pathway of his brain. Because initially it's like, as soon as hell is brought up, it goes right down fear lane. And he's gone there for so long and had that road, you know, it was initially like when he was a kid, it was this tiny little path in the woods. And now it's like a super freeway because it's been there. It's been ingrained in him for so long that once I get that person to to see like, hey, there's there's no like evidence for any of this. And, you know, I compare, it, you know, something I was like, like, how, how much time do you spend being afraid of like the Islamic version of hell? He's like, not at all. And I'm like, well, what's the difference between Islamic hell and your hell? It's like, well, there's not really. It's like, so why are you so deeply unafraid of this fear and so deeply afraid of this fear when they're the same thing? And then it's like, oh. And so for the first time, they step off the neural highway and they start a different path. And then that one starts to become the neural highway. Like, that's how you rewire your brain. Yeah. And so people who deconstruct from the head, those are the things that they're, they're able to let go of it a lot more. But in researching and, you know, getting into the arguments, that takes a lot of mental effort, which is why people I feel are so like, eh, no, thanks. I'm just going to like, I, I just want to be done with it. But I'm like, you consciously want to be done with it, but your subconscious mind won't let you. And so yeah. you have to deconstruct from and keep talking about well. it. And so that's one of the big problems that I. Yeah. 
Yeah, that was keep talking the first about, part of your, your question your about talk, why. Yeah. Well, that was what I have for that. And I forgot what the other parts of your question were. So <laughs> remind okay. me, so one, where should we go one next? Thing, one thing for me is that came up is it reminds me of um, kind of a client that I had who really, he loved the checklist from religion because when he got the checklist done, I'm good. And that wiring was still in his brain. And so um, when he left, he really got into health and he was like, you know, he had this thing where if I hit my macros, it's a good day. And if I don't hit my macros, it's a bad day. And if I have a couple bad days, then I'll do a big detox. And it was essentially his checklist and like a repentance thing in there because his brain was already was wanting that. Like, how do I know that I'm good? How do I know that I'm on the right track? How do I know that I'm okay? And so it's hard for people at, at the beginning, myself included, to see you're doing this behavior because still because of Mormonism, still because of the wiring from the religion that you came from. And so yeah. it, it, it takes a lot of time to do, and it's really hard to talk about it because again, like on, on TikTok or social media, there there's two camps. It's like, you know, Jesus or burn in hell, or it's all stupid and it's all made up and we don't have to talk about this. And then we're not actually deconstructing, right? You can just be yeah. joining the cult of atheism. So, yeah. So how? Um, can't remember my next. My, no, that's last okay. I, that what question. you just said, I have, I have uh, something I would love to, to yeah. explore a little bit deeper. So the the uh, the dynamic that for some reason for religious believers distrust feeling good, like you have to work hard to feel good about yourself because you have to earn it. But like inherently, just by yourself in your natural state, it's just you're the natural man, an enemy to God, you know, is, is the Mormon phrase. And, it, and so like I, I look at, at people. So here's an example of this. So I know somebody who has a really hard time sleeping, like gets like three hours a night. And this has been going for like 20 years. And so I was like, hey marijuana edibles can be really useful for people who like need to sleep because it's, it's incredible. And, you know, we went through all of like, you know, the medical things, why it's not like you're taking heroin, because obviously like as in the religious community, oftentimes it's drugs are just all one thing. Like meth is the same thing as like a magic mushroom, which is absolutely ridiculous, but it's like, that's the narrative. And so that's what they believe. And so as I was trying to get this person to say, Hey, like, like, you know, medically, this is totally fine. Like, look, like, look at how, Okay, you know, your risk is, is so small with trying something like that. And then you just, you know, and he, you would accept all the arguments like, yeah, that's the data, but like still wouldn't be able to do it. And it just came down to it's like he has such a deep distrust of feeling good because it's like, no, no, no. They're like, we're so used to feeling bad about ourselves that our brains like, you know, thermostat is just kind of forever set at feeling bad is normal and normal is good. So feeling bad is good. Right. Well, and also like that slippery slope. Like if I do this, exactly. the next step is heroin addict. And I do that, yep. like that is in a lot of people's brains that I work with is like, if I take a step here into chaos, then the whole thing is chaos and it's heroin addict. Like yeah. there's no differentiation. So if you take a step into the unknown, it's all chaos. And then yeah. there's no rules and there's no up and down or, you know, yeah, that's in there too. 
Yeah, and it's interesting because like the logical, the the, uh, the slippery slope is like an actual logical fallacy. It's like if I drink a Coke today, like I'll be a crack whore tomorrow. Like it's <laughs> it's just how it's going to go. And it's like, okay, that's a little bit extreme. Like let's, you know, zoom in and it's just like, nope, won't do it. So yeah, it's like religious people just have to live this life of constantly doubting themselves, distrusting, you know, things that are fun and good. And so you say no to so many things, which is one of the things that come up later as people are deconstructing. It's like, do you know how many of the most prime years of my life I said no to all these experiences that I now just wish more than anything that I could go back in time and say yes to all of them. You know, it's like just dating and having that fun, crazy experience of being young and, you know, you know, and, and, you know, being able to like have sex with a partner that you genuinely care about. It's like, no, that is the sin next to murder. It's just like the, the, the amount of stress, the amount of bricks that are in religious people's backpacks. It's like their guitars are all just strung way too tight. And so, you know, it's like, we're so happy. Come join us. And it's just like the vibe you give me makes me doubt the words that you're saying. Like, and it's just like, ee. and even as like, even when I was still in the church, that's something that I realized. I was like, we talk about we're happy, but we're not. <laughs> like, and that was just like something that I was like, yeah, but I mean, by the sweat of your brow, right? And I'd always like justify my really bad, like justify the reasons why I was like, no, no, no. Like peace on earth. Like for me, that's not, you know, by the sweat of your brow, like we are fallen man and this is a test. And so tests aren't going to be easy. And so it's just so normal for you to be miserable all the time. And so you're always just trying to hustle for your worthiness. You're always trying to convince yourself that you're not a piece of shit, you know, which it's like, that's like a really weird place to start from. Like I have to convince myself that I'm not complete trash. And if I, you know, if even I'm only like mostly trash, that's a good day. <laughs> it's just like, ee. anyway. Yeah. Ouch. So tell me, I want to shift here. You um, on your website, talk about kind of personality typing and personality coaching in mm -hmm. conjunction with people, you know, deconstructing and, and talking about, you know, these deeper things that are going on. So how, how was kind of getting into understanding your own personality helpful for you personally? And then what do you do with clients for that side of things? Yeah. So it is very rare for a faith crisis to not bring along with it an identity crisis because your faith told you who you are. It like it was like the anchor and expla explained where you are in the world and what the role is of the world around you, like all of these answers. And so all of these, you know, these beliefs ended with periods. But then when you realize that your belief system isn't actually true, all those periods turn into question marks. And that can be, that, that is so daunting because it's like, how do you even begin? Like, what is me and how can I know what's me? And so I, I started learning about like the ways that we shift, the way that we will kind of put on a mask and shape shift into a different identity because the person in front of me right now has certain rules about what a person has to adhere to in order to get their love. And so people are constantly shape shifting. You know, if it's like, if grandma's like, you know, level 10 Mormon, and, you know, she's still upset that like, you know, blacks got the priesthood and like this was, you know, it's like you're just you have to kind of you feel pressure to play that game. And so with whoever's in front of you, no matter how crazy they are, it's like, well, I want love from people. And so you have to kind of like play this game in order to be what they expect you to be. And that's so wrong because, again, it puts you at odds with yourself where you as you yourself is never good enough. And so you have to become something different. And so when I looked at the data on how young of an age do we start to develop a self-concept? 
in that age, I don't remember exactly what it is. It was like four or five. But before that, like as early as like, like before you reach one, babies have been like, um, like research has, have showed that babies will even change their behavior in order to get love. And I was like, that's so crazy. And the question that that brought up for me was, okay, so we really, like, if that young, before we even have a self-concept, what is our reference point for knowing what me was supposed to look like? And you don't have one. And that, and so like growing up, you know, let's say like you're the introvert born into a family full of extroverts. You're kind of just the weird one out. It's like, oh, you know, John just doesn't like people, which totally isn't true. You know, that's not what introversion is, but that's often how people are treated. And so based on your personality and the personality types of, you know, the people who are around you, who you need to get love from, you start this shape-shifting process before you even have a clue as to who you actually are. And that's a big problem. And that says nothing about what happens when you add on to that a religious indoctrination. And that just makes it so much more complicated. And that goes for so long. And so it's like, you can, you know, like the, the little introverted kid will kind of just start shaming themselves subconsciously. Like there's something wrong with me when it's like, there's not. And so the reason why I use uh, personality testing is not because I am sold on the accuracy of personality tests. And so I kind of bring shadow work, which is basically exploring all the parts of you that you have unknowingly repressed and then reintegrating those into who you are. So let's say, let's take a, a child who is deeply creative, for example. Like that's how that, that person came out of the box with a very creative uh, brain, but they were born to a family, very pragmatic, you know, get a real job. You know, art isn't going to make you money. And so that's just kind of either directly or indirectly discouraged. And, you know, like and I, I, I actually experienced this because I loved piano and I played it so much because it was my coping mechanism growing up because I was so miserable. Didn't know why. Now I do. And, you know, my my dad, who, who is a good person, but is just kind of a product of his own indoctrination as well. Um, you know, not just through Mormonism, but, you know, just kind of Republican conservative values, you know, money, 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 pull yourself up by your bootstraps. That was kind of his focus. He discouraged me from playing piano all the time. He's like, you know, he would kind of like you're still playing piano. Like, have you gotten, you know, how are your grades? How are those things? And so I kind of went to war at myself with this creative part of myself and then just started repressing it. And so I grew up thinking that I'm not a creative person when I am a deeply creative person. And so there's all these parts of yourself that just kind of get pushed down. And so let's bring this back to the personality test, which I said, I don't necessarily believe they're accurate because a personality test is only as accurate as the person's self-awareness has been developed. And so if I, you know, like, and, and these questions also, it's like, are you really neat or are you more of a slob? Even the slob people, their egos mm -hmm. are like, well, I don't want to think I'm a slob. And so the test results are going to push toward neat and tidy, even yeah. though maybe they're not in reality. The first and time, so I just have to say, the first time I took an Enneagram test, I was a five. And it was because I wanted to be a five. Like, I, I wanted oh, yeah. to be smart. Like, the ego in me, I want to be the smart mm -hmm. one. Like, but like, and so the first time I took it, like I've been professionally tested twice. And the first time it was like, you're a five. And then the second time I took it where I was more honest with myself, I was a four with like a five wing. But that first yeah. time it's like, yeah, I want to be the smartest effing person in the mm -hmm. room. I'm a five. <laughs> yep, that's right. Yeah. And you think about like within a given culture, like let's just take America, for example, which one wins more social points, introvert or extrovert? I'm going to say extrovert. extrovert. Yeah, yeah, extrovert all day. Even in school, it starts pretty early. Are. 
Yeah. yeah, you're socially connected. You're like, you know, you 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 know people. You become more popular at work. Extroverts rise through the ranks a lot quicker. Yeah, and so school, it's like there's, you'll yeah. be like smarter because you can give a presentation and you'll get yeah. higher marks than introverts. Yeah, and so even if you consciously aren't aware of that, your subconscious mind probably is because it looks at all the people and is soaking in, okay, who's cool and what are they like? Extrovert is one of those things, if you're not, even if you're not consciously aware of it. And so when people take tests, it's going to push toward what they want to be. So personality tests will often show you the personality you wish you were as, to, as opposed to the one that you are. So the question is, well, then if these aren't accurate, how can we make it so that we're not weaponizing against ourselves, that these aren't just further deluding us? And, you know, it, like, because when you think that, like, you know, this personality test gave me, you know, my identity, this is what it says I am. And then you kind of have faith in that. And it's not true. Then there's more instances where you have to just kind of like repress stuff. And that's the exact opposite reason why people go to personality tests to begin with, to learn more about yourself. And so, so what which, I do, oh, sorry, go ahead. Finish that. No, I was just going to say that what I do is I have people take a test. And we, so the, uh, the, the big five of personality. So personality consists of basically five coins. So you, one of the coins, introvert extrovert you know thinker feeler there's all these dualities and so the personality test questions are designed to say okay which side is this person leaning to and so they you know they get their answers and so what i like for people to do is we look at you know they're like see this is what i am and i'm like we're not even going to look at that we're going to look at all the things that you think that you're not and we're going to try to figure out why because that's how you get a creative person who doesn't think that they are creative because they've repressed it into the shadow to be able to reintegrate that and then experience the benefit and the joy of having that back in their lives. So it's basically my approach to personality testing is in a way that you can't go wrong. Cause you know, whether or not, like I, I can't look at somebody, I can't make them like, you know, pee on a stick and be like, you're an extrovert. You know, like that's not how it works. There's no objective way to measure. There's no blood test. That's going to tell you what you are. And so we look at, you know, because I, I look at the things that people don't like about themselves or, the, you know, the trait like, oh, I don't want that. So for an example, in my life, my dad is a very, his personality uh, uh, type is called the legalist, you know, very lawyer, very like, you know, very apostle, you know, it's very, you know, this is how it is. And, you know, facts don't care about your feelings. And so I had kind of, and so you look at like, okay, what trait does that sound like? Well, that sounds like being assertive. And so growing up, I was never really able to embrace that assertiveness because I was like, well, my dad's assertive. And I kind of think sometimes, you know, that's kind of an asshole thing to do. And so my brain linked asshole with assertive and I don't want to be an asshole. So therefore I cannot be assertive. And so I grew up with and I suffered deeply from nice guy mentality because I, I like I did not. I, I was at war subconsciously with masculine energy because the model that, you know, the person who modeled what masculinity was supposed to look like was someone that I took issue with. And so my brain said, nope, that's wrong. Can't do that. You know, cause I don't want to be an asshole. And so then there were all these parts of me that I was like, you know, and so on my personality test, guess, you know, what came up between thinker and feeler. It was all feeler when in fact, I mean, look at what I do. Like I'm very, I'm very much thinker. And I, I, I've in, I try to look at life as though it's not happening to me, it's happening for me, which may be a little bit idealistic, and I can admit that. But like that pain of me having to, you know, think I was a, a feeler for so long when I was, I think I'm a lot more, you know, thinking oriented, forced me to develop a side of me that I wouldn't have developed had, you know, that relationship, that dynamic between me and my dad and masculinity not taken place. And so I was like, okay, so like, 
there's a silver lining here. And so whatever happens to people, I also like to give them hope that like, because people really beat themselves up about the loss that they experienced as a result of indoctrination, you know, religious, political, or just personality wise, you know, for what is the right personality? What is the right political, you know, belief? What is the right religion? All of that is just there. And so when you start to question that, your ego is freaking out because it's like, wait, we, we have built our entire life on these presuppositions that they're true, you know, about my identity and about, you know, life and about what is a good person, what is a bad person, you know? And so to even think about taking down that entire structure that you've spent your entire life painstakingly building, and it makes it even worse that a lot of that building you were doing thinking something is wrong and just pushed it away. And now you have a reason to like also get mad, not at just the people who are pushing you in these directions, but that you yourself were complicit in being pushed the direction that you didn't want to go to begin with. It's civil war inside and it is civil war outside. And that is when people come to me and they're like, I am dying. Like life is not going well for me. And it's like, I get it. Like I get why you're in so much pain. Yeah, that was Emotion. a lot. Emotion. See a little feeler coming through. Feeler. Yeah. There's a couple there uh, there's a couple of things that that brought up for me and then I'm sure Bill has a couple of things too, but for me um yeah, I had that same response that you had with connecting something with my mom because my mom I think is bipolar and so her emotions were very volatile for me as a child and so I associated yeah. feminine with volatility and yeah. the lack of logic that is in motion and so i completely turned off feeler which is really like like i i feel deeply yeah. about really deep as a four with a five wing which is you know bill and yeah. i talk about enneagrams i i feel really deeply but i essentially turned it off because it felt unsafe and so i only read like male philosophers I went into yeah. like theology programs. It's yep. almost hundred percent male because that just felt a lot safer for me. And I didn't realize I was doing that of course, until much later. And it's like, Oh, I basically threw away all of like feminine energy, feminine divine. Yeah. I threw it all away because I have some mommy issues, you know, yeah. didn't know I was doing that. Just thought feelings were stupid, even though I'm, in my core, I actually do feel deeply about a lot of things. So yeah. And I'm sure I, the patriarchy loved that about you. It's like, yeah, sweet. Just, we don't have to work on this one. Yeah, like she's I'll already. Just, I'll just be complicit malleable. with, you know, yeah, mm -hmm. with with logic and and emotion is stupid and unreliable and yeah, yeah. I, I did and pretty well in those programs. <laughs> yeah, it, it's sad because we learn to turn to stone. And so yeah. by doing so, we numb the pain, but we also realize that you can't numb pain unless you also numb joy. And so you're just kind of in this catatonic state where you're alive, but you're not living. Well, and if it affected my ability to have relationships with females too, just because like that feminine yeah. energy was really strange to me and I couldn't quite get a, a grasp of yeah. it. Um, so yeah, it affected me for a long time. So do you, um, we've, we've done quite a bit of episodes, Bill and I on shadow work, inner child work, yeah. Enneagram. We've used that as like, again, like not that it's like, a sacred thing of truth, but that it can be a tool for people to, to give name to their shadow selves. Um, what we've never done the bit, like the big five personality test and used that as a, as a shadow work piece. So that, that piece is really interesting to me. I don't see a lot of people using 
like like you're saying where you're using the big five but also looking at where you scored low and digging into there to see if there's any repression there yeah. um, which i find really interesting um yeah i don't have anything to say about it other than that that's really interesting we haven't dug into that on this podcast specifically. yeah it's it's a way to kind of take what is very nebula nebulous and cerebral and bring it down with a functional tool that helps people map where they are and it helps people say, okay, so this is what I think about me, but is that true? This is what I don't think about me, but is that true? And so it puts identity back up on the table where people can like take a fresh look at what they are because it's not because personality tests are like, here you go. This is who you are. But like nobody questions that. Or if they do, they don't really have, you know, a tool that they're aware of in order to kind of question whatever results come out on their personality test. And also like, it's, it's kind of funny because personality comes from, I think it's Greek personas, which means mask. And so you can change a mask. You can change your personality, but temperament are kind of the hardwired aspects of your brain that are not meant to change. And it's really funny because there's like, there's a lot of uh, examples of, of this, of like when, uh, so there's this quote by Tony Robbins that says, success without fulfillment is massive failure. Because basically it's like when somebody gets really good at something that they don't enjoy. It's like doing all the work to climb up the ladder to realize it was leaning against the wrong wall. And like, that's really sad. And so one of the one of the most interesting examples of this is Bob Ross. So when we, you guys know who Bob Ross is, painter, happy little trees, very feminine energy. Do you know what his job was for most of his life? Drill sergeant. Can you imagine Bob Ross being a drill sergeant? Now, when he left that, he even like he made a vow that he would never raise his voice again. And people, so what, what his, his story is so interesting because it shows you that yes, you can do anything and become good at it. He was a good drill sergeant, but he didn't have that fulfillment. And so he spent so much of his life doing something that he didn't love. And when he kind of embraced himself, and you know, at that time, you know, this is like pre 90s, we hadn't even begun to consider that it's okay for men to be feminine. You know, and so which explains why he just kind of stuck to that for so long. And then when he left, all of a sudden he embraces who he actually is and changes the bloody world with what he does with him just painting. You know, it's like and what if he had a father who was uh, not not to, to bag on my dad, but somebody who had like, you know, kind of that aspect of, you know, arts aren't really a thing. You know, playing piano isn't really a thing. Maybe Bill, you know this, but who's the apostle that went to BYU and basically told all the men in the arts and humanities programs to get a real job? I don't know. I'll have to uh -huh. look that up, but it's a juicy one. He, he, he told <sighs> all the men in the arts program, guys, cut this. Not imagine good. <laughs> just imagine realizing that you were the man who convinced Bob Ross that art is a sissy thing and not to pursue it, and then he listened. Oh. Just right, vomit. And, and oh. again, just to throw in a caveat, which is every one of these personality types plays an important role in our society, and the artist, the creator, puts voice to movements, puts voice to ideas that the rest of us take so long generations to come to um whether it's somebody writing the lyrics for a song whether it's somebody painting uh, a piece of art there's something about the artist that they have the ability to convey ideas to a larger society that the rest of us just aren't ready for but that we need to be nudged into yeah yeah these are the intuitives in the uh 
the, the eyes in the personality test. They're the ones who push the limits who are often creating, like they're the ones who push different fashion trends that catch on because they're, they're very much thinking about like out, they're thinking out of the box and they challenge the status quo. Whereas the other side of that particular coin is about, okay, let's break it down and make it simple, you know, so that we can have like a well-greased, you know, machine and that's society, which obviously has a place because we need structure. But this is kind of one of the problems with capitalism is that it very much favors certain personality types. And when you don't have, you know, control over what your personality is. I mean, you can repress the hell out of your, you know, certain attributes of yourself, but it's like, you look at capitalism and the way that it, you know, it has like technical like systems in place that kind of keep wealth in this group of people and not so much in this group of people. And that's before you even look at personality, which happens before all of that. And it's like, some people were just like, like there are so many disadvantages that we don't even acknowledge as part of the capitalistic system. Like we can't, we criticize it in all these different ways without even realizing that in addition to that, you know, it's like, oh, which personality were you born with? Okay, you're not gonna do very well. Getting food on your or table even, is gonna be a little bit or more Or even like birth order, Bill and I are both first children and it's one of like the greatest privileges when you look at statistics being the firstborn child and the resources that you get when you're the firstborn child. And that if we were really looking at privilege, we would actually put programs in for, you know, fourth, fifth, 10th child because it so affects your development to be the firstborn versus the fifthborn, which is yeah. interesting. We don't even talk about it, right? Yeah, it's like the guinea pig child is the first one. And then his parents figure out like what are better, you know, more useful parenting strategies like the kids later get that. But yeah, so are you or, saying or that in like- this, No, no, the, the privilege, it, no, the firstborn child the is well. the opposite. Yeah. 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 So <laughs> like they, they're going to be more confident. They're going to uh, make more money. They're going to do better in school. The, the attention that they get on just them in those first couple years um, pays off for them in a way that it doesn't for later siblings. And by the sixth kid, you're worn out, you're tired, you don't really yeah. want to be as involved, you just want to take a break yeah. and breathe. I'm so glad yeah. to learn this. I'm going to throw this at my two older siblings until we're dead. You should. <laughs> Anytime I just fail at anything, I'm like, well, guess what? Like, your your life is so much easier. Don't even know your own privilege. Check your privilege at the door, big bro. Yeah, said this is white male. Like, <laughs> you guys are you guys are hitting on a a thing though. Um, when we're young, in our religious narratives, we just think that all humans essentially are the same, and the people who aren't doing the work in the religious tribe they're just lazy or they're bad or whatever the words are that, you know, labels that we apply to them. Yeah. And and so, sir, but we, but on this side of things, we get it. Like the way we parse people out, um, there are certain personality traits that will be rewarded as successful within a religious tribe, a, a, a congregation. And so in, again, the one we came from, if you are uh, a male, obviously you get, you get, first dibs on leadership and the chance to do things. If you're an extrovert, as you pointed out earlier, Kyle, you get the benefits of that. If, yeah. um, I would if say loyalty, I would say loyalty, I would say those top men all have a core value of loyalty. But if you're a female with those same traits, you suddenly are seen as somebody who's bumping up against the system. And so I've got a really good uh, female friend she is brilliant. There's no doubt when she grew up, when she was in her teenage years, she wanted to be a surgeon and, and she would have. There's no ifs, ands, or buts in my mind. She is a go-getter. Um, she's motivated. 
when she wants to do something, she gets it done. She can balance multiple tasks at once. Uh, she has multiple professional careers that she does well in each of them. But Mormonism imposed on her that her job was to sit quietly in the background, make babies, raise them, and yeah. then move on. And so she took her young women's leaders seriously. And it's not really the young women's leaders. It's the curriculum that was imposed to be taught by those leaders and the, um, the heritage of, uh, of absurd stories passed along to these kids that told them they had to be a certain kind of woman in order to be prized and treasured by the system itself. Yes. And, uh, and so she ended up having, uh, you know, multiple children, I think four or five kids and, um, ended up doing lots of professional things later on in life, but had lots of resentment in all of those years of young motherhood. And when you ask her, she says, I, if I had my own intuition being allowed to rise to the surface and let me decide what I would have done, she says, I, I almost certainly wouldn't have had as many kids as I had and maybe would have had none. And there's no doubt I would have achieved these other things in my life. And when religion jumps in and tells you that you have to be a certain kind of human and then changes the track that you were on, there's, there's so much space for resentment and hurt. Yes. I, I just, anyway, the, what you guys are hitting on, I think is a big, big, big deal in these religious paradigms and especially in high demand fundamentalist religions, which by its, by the nature of that title says that it imposes that you belong and fit in a small little box and none of us humans do. Yeah. And you know, Bill, you, you touched on amazing points right there. And there's a few that I want to go a little bit deeper on. So for example, with, with uh, like women in the church aren't just kind of like accepted for being feminine, but for them to be masculine, they're penalized for that often. And so it's like, and then you add on top of that, like, let's, let's look at me. Let's, let's open up my relationship with my mother. Cause that'll be fun. Um, so I am, you know, more thinking and my mom is naturally just more feeling. And so that kind of makes it hard to connect. But when my mom has been indoctrinated her entire life with this idea that like you are a baby making machine and, and she believed that and she let it in, you know, when all of her kids grew up and left the house, she had only known how to be one thing and that's mother. And when her children were no longer in a stage where we needed mother, it's kind of like it just dropped off. So not only the personality differences, you know, make, make it an issue, but when you compound the religious indoctrination that women are supposed to be give, 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 feel, 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 never take and never be masculine or strong. You know, you have to be submissive. It just compounds. And so it breaks these relationships that otherwise had they not been exposed to this, you know, indoctrination their entire life, like it would have opened up our relationship to be so much more than what is than what it can be because of those restraints. And because she's been in it for so long, there's just almost no way to be like, hey, you can explore yourself outside of this. Like, you're not just mother. And so when the kids were gone, what did my mom do? She became a nanny for anybody that she could. And because that, that was her one skill set. And so she's trapped inside this one singular identity. And she's been, you know, you could say she's not being denied, but she is because she has been mind controlled and indoctrinated, you know, to only, you know, it's like, how would you expect a person? 
to go through this long of an indoctrination to just all of a sudden be able to be like, okay, I'm going to be something totally different now. And you see this all over the place. Like, you know, sex is this shameful red light that's hanging above you at the intersection your entire life. And then all of a sudden, oh, it's green now. I just got married. Okay, cool. This is going to be a smooth transition. And it's not. And so it's like they they don't look at the shadow side of these things. Because the church is very dualistic. It's very black, white. It's very good, evil. You know the story that they tell about the, uh, it's the old Indian uh, parable of like, there's two wolves inside of you. Which one wins? The one you feed. How about both of these wolves sit down together at the table and realize that the other has a skill set that would actually complement their weaknesses quite fantastically. But the church puts them in a cage where they have to fight and one of them has to die. And so parts of yourself die. And then we look at that story and we're like, oh, yeah, okay, so don't be evil. What does that mean? And what does that look like? And so women are sitting there thinking, well, okay, so I'm supposed to be feminine so I can never be masculine. And then men are like, okay, I have to be masculine so I can never be feminine. And so men fall over dead by the time they're 40 because they can't just admit the puppy's cute. You know, and it's it's just it's so or have like intimate male friendships and say, I love you, man. You know, yeah, exactly. All of that because they have to the leadership always has to be turned on. Yeah. Men suffer and women suffer. It's just. Yeah, they both suffer. I work with I work with more women and my heart really goes out to like your mom, people like this. They, they bought this story that if you do these things, you'll be you'll be revered as a mother and that your kids will be OK. They'll be on the path and they'll honor and revere you for, you know, the mother that you are. And so they give up, you know, their identity, their personality, any career goals that they would have had otherwise. And then the sad thing is that when all their kids leave the church and they've yeah. given their life to this promise that if you yes. do these things and give up your life, your kids will be safe and they will honor and revere you. And then they leave and they want to talk to you about their trauma and your life is almost over. I mean, yeah. that, that like, it, it literally shatters my heart. You know, Regret that that tears happens. people apart. It absolutely oh. just, and the betrayal that they feel. Regret and betrayal are of the most toxic things a person that could experience, a person can experience long-term. And, um, so I dated this girl who had a kid and she had you know, gotten divorced from her narcissistic man child of a husband. And then I had uh, started to date her and I, and she talked to me about how she felt about her child. And it's such a cruel position to be in because she acknowledged, she acknowledged that if she could go back in time, she wouldn't have had this child with this person, but she also loves the daughter that is now in front of her. And it is such a cruel thing to be put into this system where you didn't, you know, you were only given just this ridiculous narrative and, you know, penalized for every stepping out of it. And so you just accept, I have to do this. And so you make decisions that you would have never have made had you not felt this pressure, this duress to do so in order to be accepted. Isn't that shocking though, that like, I really think this is a new thing. I really think for thousands of years, men told women, like you say, like you're feminine, this is, this is what you do. You have babies and this is your role. And then, um, you know, of course, like it's even early psychology, like these were all men. And if you didn't act like a white man, then you were hysterical and take yeah. some cocaine or whatever it is. Yeah. Know? And, and so we're seeing for the first time with social media, just how many mothers say, I don't think I would have had children. Like I love my kids, 
but this is so hard and not what I thought it would be and yeah. the mental toll and the emotional toll. And maybe I would have had less children if, if yep. I would have known. And I really do think it's the first time in human history where women can talk to other women honestly about what it's like to be a mother and what it takes. And I don't think that we've ever as females had that opportunity, right? Because we, yeah. because if you didn't, if you said that, even if you were postpartum depressed, you know, a hundred years ago, you were just crazy. Why don't you enjoy your newborn baby? This is what you're here to do. And so it is fascinating to see, I mean, this shadow side of motherhood has been repre repressed for thousands of years. And, yeah. it, and I, it is interesting to see it come to light as women on social media are able to be honest with other women. Yeah, it's this idea that you can only be one thing. And this shows up all over the place. Like, for example, like I'm a life coach and I think about like, okay, paint a picture of what a life coach is supposed to look like. It's like I'm dressed in a tie. I definitely don't wear a backwards baseball cap. You know, like all these things about, I guess, if you know, if I, I felt this pressure that if I'm going to be a life coach, then I have to be this way. But then I sacrifice all of my authenticity, which is the thing that people can connect with. And so it's like, it's this weird grappling between like, okay, I'll get more clients if I look like this image. But this image is something that I can't really connect with. And I, 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 met, I, uh, I started uh, coaching this 12-year-old uh, guy yesterday. And one of the things he pointed out, he's like, dude, I've been to so many therapists that I've just, it's been so rough and rocky. And I love your informal professionalism. And I was like, finally, some validation. Because <laughs> like, <laughs> it's like, you don't have to, like, it's so dumb. Like, you can be a therapist and also have a real good time smoking weed. You know, it's like you don't have to be one thing. This is like this is your human experience and you are here for the for a blip and you are gone like and no matter what happens and unfolds in this moment that you exist, it should at least be your goddamn moment. No one should be able to take that away from you. And the church does do that because it says, nope, who you are is flawed. You have to become this other version of yourself. And it's not only religions that, you know, perpetuate this ridiculous, harmful, isolating uh, message. It's just something that, you know, comes even if you don't have a religious indoctrination. But when you add both of those together, it's just so rare that people actually self-actualize when they become the person that they actually are. And so yeah, the statistics are what, like less than 1%? Yeah, um, it was, who was it? Adults? It was like, yeah. Maslow, you know, yeah. the hierarchy mm -hmm. of needs guy said that it is very rare for somebody to self-actualize. And Carl Jung, yeah. who came later, and he's the one who did shadow work for people who aren't familiar with his name. Um, he, he agreed that most of the time we are just so afraid to just be who we are. That's why, like, you know, when you watch movies that are about authenticity and becoming who you are, that it, it, it's amazing. And uh, I, made, I made a TikTok recently that I, I was actually particularly, like, happy with. And, and I shared, I was basically talking about how people who are leaving the church are grappling with this authenticity thing. It's like, okay, I'm a completely different person after deconstructing. My political beliefs have changed. My view of the world, my view of myself, it has completely changed. But if you show up in your relationships as this new person that you are, you're abandoning the old version of yourself that knew how to consistently and easily get love because you knew the rules of that game. All I have to do is shape shift for this person in the way that they want me to be. And then I get the love. That's the equation. And so as you leave that, it's very scary. And so the question comes up, how much of myself do I let people know about? Like, you know, do I hide the coffee machine when my family's coming over? 
Like, it sounds so ridiculous to people who weren't raised Mormon that, like, coffee machines are a thing in that religion. Like, you feel shame about owning a coffee maker? And it's like, yeah, we do, because we were indoctrinated with this belief system that shamed us for it. And, like, you know, you don't get to go to heaven if you have coffee. Like, coffee, what a ridiculous belief system. And so this whole identity crisis is just going on for, for everybody. And it's it's so sad to see like when people finally wake up to what they have lost. It is so hard to repair that because they've like the church has stolen the one thing that they can never give back. Like they could refund tithing. They're not gonna, spoiler alert. Um, but like they cannot give you your time back. They cannot give you the life that you would have had otherwise had you not believed in these ridiculous beliefs. It, and so it goes, yeah. goes further than that, which is even if you fit in the box on the front end, yes, you the 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 religious system there and lots of other ones across the world treat you as if you're you know a third grader in a sense, right? Like you never really graduate to anything that's this mature faith. It's always these simple, mm-hmm. absurd stories. Don't question them. When yep. your brain tells you something doesn't fit, they just don't want you to really explore that. And so as, as what normal, what a normal human journey looks like is there is growth and progress. We read new books, we think about new thoughts, we get exposed to new places and new people. And all of that is expansive to our minds. We start to sense that uh, a human who is a different color, who lives out their life very differently, who speaks a different language, um, they're still human just like I am. And yet our system and lots of them treat you as something bad when you grow and you think differently and you're, and you, uh, as you change your, so it's not just that you're not allowed to be anything other than what it tells you to be. It's even if you fit in the box, growth is seen as something negative and bad. And you're supposed to stay at that earlier stage forever. Like the person who gets a testimony yeah. of the gospel, believes all the orthodox stories, and then now they're 75 years old and they're still there. That The system rewards them and sees them as being the stalwart person. Yeah. And the other individual who spent their life learning and thinking and wrestling with ideas and who changed their mind because they found better arguments, they're the bad, they're the bad guy. Yeah, it's interesting because the way that you score points in an intellectual realm is the exact opposite of how you score points in the realm of faith. Because, you know, if, if you are wanting, you know, in the scientific community to say things are a certain way, then you have to provide evidence and have that be peer reviewed and ripped apart to make sure that it's actually true. But in the realm of faith, the more evidence that you can point at and say, nope, the louder the applause gets for you. And it's like, you know, somebody comes in and says, yeah, like, I, I, I don't really believe in the Big Bang. It's like, hey, that's cool. And then somebody who acknowledges all the evidence for the Big Bang and then talks about it and says, and I still don't believe. It's like, wow, this guy's even better. Like, <laughs> wow, his faith or is he, so big. Oh, and it's yeah. just like, it is so asinine. It is so ridiculous. Well, and in the scientific community, you get points for, like, if you have a theory and you come out <clears throat> 10 years later and say, I was wrong, you get street cred for that because it shows yeah, that yeah. you learned something. And you were willing to, you know, forego your previous theory and all your ego attached to that to say, I was wrong. I actually think it's this now. And that gives you points. But if you do that in a faith-based place, then you're not going to get points for that shift. In the faith-based. In science communities. They'll play it both ways, right? Like if you leave, if you leave that other church and you, you change your mind on that other church and you come into ours. 
like, oh man, you, we yeah. are just going to celebrate well, yeah. you. And if you destroyed that family by making that move, like, yay. But yes. then like, if you change and destroy yeah. your family, then it's like, well, wrong way. And then, yeah, and then you've got, oh, and then yeah. you've got like one of the leaders in the LDS church, Dieter Uchtdorf, who said, doubt your doubts. Right. And all you have to do is apply mm -hmm. that logically. And you go like, oh, high demand fundamentalist religions want you to doubt your doubts. They don't want you to doubt, but they want you to doubt your doubts. But they don't want you to doubt the doubting of your doubts. But they would love for you to doubt the doubting of doubting your doubts. Like, like it's the game that gets played is it's always on one side of the argument they love and on the other side of the argument they don't. So it's never really about doubting questions at all. Yeah. It's always about <laughs> arriving at a certain conclusion. Okay, so this last shift here, I don't know if we'll be able to get through our whole list today. Maybe we'll have you on in the future and do the big, maybe Bill and I could take the big five personality test and we can go through it and yeah, yeah, that'd be cool. See how that goes. Can I make so one, I uh, yeah, mm -hmm. one point before we shift? So, Bill, yeah. you, what you just said reminded me of a meme, and I'm looking at it. It's uh, it's uh, Uchtdorf who's in an airplane, you know, with the, the, the stripes and everything in his in the cockpit. And it says, this is your captain speaking. A warning light came on, which gave us a brief concern about the integrity of engine number two. However, I've instructed the crew to doubt their doubts, and we will be taking off on schedule. Enjoy the flight. It's exactly what it is. <laughs> oh, the airplane. That it was an airplane analogy. Yeah. Just like. Faith can only be a good thing. And again, it's this dualistic yeah. approach. It's I like, do wonder in the future with all the deconstruction happening, you know, faith has been seen as a virtue you know it's been it's been in our in our conversation in just society it's been seen as a virtue to have faith in something but with all of this 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 pushback and especially the threat of religious fundamentalism i wonder if it'll ever get to a point where that word is not seen as a virtue like maybe there's other still reasons to be a part of religions and you'll say you know oh i really love the community or really whatever but i wonder if eventually just to say i just have faith that this happened like that has received so much pushback from the rest of the world that that will yeah. no longer be seen as a, a virtue that that would be seen as a flaw like i see that shift happening i wonder if it'll like really shift that way in our lifetime okay so my last question for you is or maybe we'll see how much time we have left but just how do you um you know bill and i really the purpose of this podcast is to try to pull out the baby of spirituality out of the bathwater of of religion yeah and so i just wanted to ask you you know how do you see spirituality now and then like how would you describe your spiritual life or your spiritual practice now yeah so um, Sam Harris uh, helped me a lot with this one because he's a deeply spiritual person and also one of the four horsemen of atheism. And what he taught me was that you can have a deeply enriching spiritual life without believing in any form of a supernatural realm. Because spirituality is about connection. And there's so, way, so many different ways for you to connect. And one of the ways that like I... Uh, like for, for and for a while, as I was deconstructing, spirituality became kind of a dirty word for me because I I didn't like how it was typically used because it's been hijacked, you know, by religion. And whenever someone says spirituality, it typically means something having to do with God or the spirit, you know, the supernatural realm. I get a lot of that pushback on my TikTok channel, just like oh, I bet. <laughs> pages and pages and pages of it. Yeah. 
And it's like, uh, like religion asks the question and psychedelics give the answer. Like that is one of the places where I found a deep amount of, uh, of spirituality. And, and, and for people who aren't on board with psychedelics, that's totally fine. It's like, there's so many different ways to connect with people because I mean, the reason like we value spirituality because it kind of gives us a reference point and a way to describe and conceptualize the human experience. And to say that that can't be done without a belief in a God, you know, and we've believed in over 4,000 of them, you know, and, it, and people only believe in one out of those 4,000, yet everybody else is crazy. Um, it's There's so many different ways that you can conceptualize what to be human is. And it's interesting because, you know, a lot of people, in order to feel certain in life, they turn to religion. But as I became an atheist and then an anti-theist, I also met my need of certainty because you just need to have an explanation for it. What's scary is not having an explanation and, you know, not having a way to really conceptualize what this is all about. And one of the things that happens when people deconstruct is that the original, you know, purpose of life, which is, you know, basically to get to heaven and not go to hell, you know, that's no longer there. And so it's like, well, what do I do? And people feel this profound sense of, of loss there. And I think it's really interesting because people are always like, well, what do I replace my religion with? And Christopher Hitchens had such a good retort to this. And he said, well, what do you replace cancer with? I was like, that's a pretty damn good answer. It's like, go live your life, explore. You don't have to read the script anymore. And while initially that can be very terrifying because, you know, it's like, wait a minute, like I have to just use my own heart to guide me in my life. Like, that's scary. What if I mess up? But it's like, well, religion has guaranteed that you've messed up this entire time. So as afraid as you are, it can only get better from here. I remember a debate where they asked him, like, Chris Richards, like, if, we're, if this is it, like, what is the point of this life? And they were all kind of, you could tell, they were just kind of on the edge of their seat. Like, what is he going to say to this question? And he just had the most humble answer. He said, I really love irony. I really love reading. I really love a cup of coffee. I really love spending time with my children. And he just kind of listed off things that like, you know, I don't know what it is for everyone. But for me, yeah. I love irony. It just tickles me and makes it worth it to be alive. Yeah. And and it was just such a different answer compared to kind of the religious people that he was debating against that it kind yeah. of just like everyone was just kind of like irony, like the purpose of your life is because you enjoy irony. And he was like, yeah, I really enjoy that. Yeah. <laughs> but because he found, love that. you know, things, simple little things to live for and appreciate in each day. But it, it is a shift. It is. And it, it may take some time for your brain to make that shift post deconstruction. Yeah. Let's see, you, you, there was a question. Um, what do I hope for in terms of spirituality for the next generation in the future? Yeah. So do you think, so answer that question for sure. And, and do you think that the future, we have talked about psychedelics quite a bit mm. on this podcast and the future of spirituality in regards to psychedelics. Do you think that, you know, sacraments of psychedelics is the new future of spirituality? Do you see that taking root? Yeah, I, I think it's the future of spirituality. I mean, it doesn't have to be, but I, I definitely think that, uh, like Sam Harris talked about, how if his if his uh, daughters lived their life without taking a psychedelic, that he would fear that they had missed out on one of the most amazing human experiences that a person can have. But if they were to yeah, do, yeah, Bill you know, posted heroin, that on his Facebook okay. the other day. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So that basically says it. So. Uh, it can be awesome. It's not something people have to do, but it's something that's very, very beautiful, can be very beautiful. I've definitely had some rough, you know, experiences, but they've also been illuminating. So it's like, is there a bad trip? I don't know the answer to that. That's I think it's the, that's... I think it's the quickest way 
to see the world completely different than your own day-to-day perspective. Like meditation yeah. can get you there, but you need to practice it and it it needs to really be something that you invest some time in on the front end to get a consistent yeah. experience in the back end. And other things can do it. Travel, you know, sitting with other people in other geographic locations, mm-hmm. getting to know people very different than you. But you take five grams of mushrooms and wait 45 minutes and it it you're already there. Like it's it takes you there. Yeah. Something's, you, something's you know. gonna happen. Yeah. yeah, you're not you're not taking five grams of mushrooms and nothing happens. And whatever happens, it will be transcendent on one degree or another. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 at the very least, it will be illuminating to something. And I mean, I've I've experienced. Um, I thought that I had grieved something to its completion, and then took psychedelics and just wept for hours, mm. and didn't realize that like there was this little kid who was still just like suffering in there because yeah. of like a relationship that you lost. So it could be yeah. so powerful. And yeah, it's so, uh, I was going to say so accessible. And unfortunately, not as accessible as uh, we wish that it it was. But uh, yeah, it's like it's like the edible version of enlightenment. Yeah. Not, not that, it, you know, it, it shows you things. And so when you come off of your trip, you still have to do those things. You know, it's, it's like how people think therapy fixes them. It, it, it fixes your problems, whereas therapy shows you your problems and then you have to go fix them. So it's not like some people think, oh, don't do psychedelics because it's just a drug. You know, it's it's not it's it's false, you know, growth. And it's like, well, but you can't grow and experience certain things that you're not aware of. And like when I for whatever reason, when I am on anything, alcohol, weed or psychedelics, I it is truth serum to me. And I cannot tell a lie and I cannot lie to myself, which. I have a rough relationship with that because, there's, you know, you find all the things that you have been bullshitting yourself about, and that can be deeply useful. And without the aid of a psychedelic, a lot of those things you would never, you know, really know, or who's to say, but uh, you're right. Those. Psychedelics have been very helpful. So many people speak ill of conscious altering tools, <laughs> mainly because they say it's a shortcut, right? Like yeah. it's drugs. You should really put the hard work into meditation, which I don't disagree with. You should meditate. All the wise people I know have a meditation practice. And I don't see the problem with a shortcut. If somebody said, here's a million bucks, you don't have to work for it. I'll still (laughs) do other things in my life that have growth and progress. But now I've got a million bucks and I didn't have to spend 10 years making it. A shortcut to an altered conscious experience done safely. About 99% of this planet would benefit greatly from that. Yeah. Yeah. And honestly, I, there's, think... I was just going to say, there's a part of me that thinks that the foundation of religion was psychedelics. I mean, there is this yeah. theory, which I, I'm not sure if I buy it yet. And I haven't looked into it deeply enough to have an informed opinion, yeah. but they're like consciousness came from uh, us, you know, 350 million years ago, Don't uh, finding psychedelics yeah. and eating them in the forest. And then, yeah. you know, that, I don't know if that's true, but uh, Bill, had a, like Bill had a trip where the mushrooms told him it was true. And we kind of have ayahuasca. a phrase. Oh, ayahuasca. And we kind of have a phrase on this show that I've taken to my girlfriends too, where like the mushrooms told me, and it's like something you learned. You yeah. know? Medicine is the so, teacher. So yeah. Bill, I think that that theory is true to Bill because, you know, the plants told him it was. Um, and yeah, Terrence McKenna is the one who invented the stoned ape theory. And I, the, the ayahuasca taught me hours and hours of deep ideas around the stone date theory before I had known that Terrence McKenna had yeah. come up with it. In other words, I, I invented it in my own head after he had invented it. Yeah. And, uh, and crazy experience. And just 
just to finish up what you're saying, which is for folks out there, again, go watch How to Change Your Mind on Netflix by Michael Pollan. Go read the book. Don't trust anybody else saying anything. Just go investigate the best of researchers on these topics. And they're all, for the most part, all on the same page. Yeah. You know, I don't know if you guys have heard this analogy. I would imagine you have since you guys are, you know, in, into this uh, field. Um, but like taking a psychedelic is like a fresh snow. And so mm. they, the analogy was like, if you go down the sledding hill, you kind of fall into the same rut over and over. And so it's yeah. kind of like the neural pathways we talked about earlier, where you just kind of fall into the same rut. You take a psychedelic and it's just, it allows you to go it's a down whole different track way. you get to be on. And you'll, and the next day you're, you take enough of that with you that it will be life-changing yeah the yeah. afterglow that key, of, that key of that key of integrating it mm-hmm. yeah that was the life changer for me was that that fallen snow being able to get out of the thought loops that i was stuck in i was just stuck like probably for like two years like stuck in this kind of nihilistic thought that i couldn't mm-hmm. see my way out of and then the fallen snow and then doing it with other people. And so like the connection of that and then having like that reintegration where I make some shifts and changes in my life as a result of that. I mean, like 10 years of therapy, 20 years of meditation, yeah. just in that kind of six month period. Um, but I really do recommend, you know, doing it with a guide for the first time, doing it with someone who will help you reintegrate, doing it with people that can, there's some sacredness you know, some people really enjoy doing this alone and that's great, but there is also a sacredness in, in being that naked with other people. It kind of fast tracks friendships too. And, oh, absolutely. And yeah. Uh, yeah, I do hope, I do think in our lifetime, it won't be uncommon 10 years from now for me saying, I'm going on a yoga retreat to this place. And, you know, there's going to be part of this as part of like a retreat center. Yeah. And that'll just be a normal thing. Like I, I hope that that, that yeah. happens here in the next decade. I think it's being demanded. The people have realized all the, you know, the bullshit about, you know, psychedelics or drugs and, you know, they'll, you know, you'll kill your sister if you take one. Like this, you know, the Reagan administration stuff about weed and anyway, asinine. So I think that is also where it's going to go inevitably because the people want to heal and the government can only say no for so long. But anyway, to answer the the question, uh what do I hope for in terms of spirituality for the next generation in the future? So there's two things. So one, that whether or not something makes you happy has absolutely no bearing on whether or not that belief is true. That's one of the biggest things that drives me crazy is that when people find out I'm an atheist, like, well, like, don't you want to believe in an afterlife? I'm like, what? Like, so if I want it to be true, then it's more likely to be true. Like I, you know, it's like, so if I have cancer, like you just like, you know, embrace delusion. Like, no, I don't have cancer because that will feel better. But in the long term, it's like, I'm not going to get treatment. I'm not going to, you know, there's consequences to just saying like, oh, it makes me happy. Like, well, doesn't racism make racists happy? So why would they let go of something that makes them happy? Why would yeah. a, a misogynist let go of misogyny when it, you know, puts him above women? It's like, it is such a silly idea that because something makes me happy, that that means it's right. And this leads to the second part of my answer, which is um, I hope that we are all much more aware of the ripple effect that our belief systems have on others. And if the price of your joy comes at the cost of someone else suffering, you should be ashamed that that is the method that you think is acceptable. Because as soon as you're the recipient of somebody else's bad belief system, you know, you're all upset about it. You don't get to do that. 
you don't get to be, you know, supporting something that hurts other people. And then when you're the one getting hurt, you know, to all of a sudden cry persecution doesn't work. Religious people. Mm, that's interesting. That would be a nice, like, if you just type that out, just like made an, you know, some Instagram meme. That I made feels- a TikTok about it. Everything okay, I just said yeah. is much more, much better uh, in, in the TikTok. It was, which yeah, I loved. Was, yeah, uh, I loved. I loved all your videos on TikTok, and I was just like, I got to I got to meet this guy. But thank you. But yeah, it's it's so true, and I I really loved this conversation. I wasn't sure how it was going to go because I just have only seen you on social media, and I just joined TikTok like a yeah. week ago. Um, but I'm so glad at this conversation. It was so lovely. So if people really want to know more about you and where you are on social media and your website and the kind of work that you do, um, give us that piece. Sorry, say that one more time. <laughs> Sorry, just like I where can people find you? Yeah, where can oh. people find you? So um, if people want to, so I, I give everybody a 30 minute free conversation just because life is hard. You just get on my website, Beyond Gone Religion, scroll to the bottom, and then there's just what can I help you with? Type it in, fill out the information, and then I'll reach out to you. Um, I am going to be doing a, I'm going to start doing retreats for people who are deconstructing, and we're going to be going to Goblin Valley. We have all of the permits and everything. So that's something I'm really excited about. I haven't made that public yet. Um, so this is the first that people are hearing about it, but I will put that out there as well. So if you are in Utah or if you're not, um, and you want to come join, it's going to be kind of a weekend warrior sort of an experience. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah, there it is. So you can just scroll to the bottom or click any of the yeah, book a session buttons. And uh, that's how you can get a hold of me. TikTok, Instagram. Yeah, I'm remarkably findable on the Internet. So beyond gone religion, you'll find me. Sweet. All right. Well, I don't have anything else. And just so nice, so lovely to meet you and so grateful that you were able to come on the podcast. And uh, yeah, this has just been such a lovely conversation. It's so nice. It's so nice to find other people that are just really trying to hold on to spirituality, hold on to the good stuff, but yet have no fear at pushing against things that are toxic. And it's hard to hold those two things together because you'll get pushback from both sides. And I see that on, you know, my social media. I see that on Bill's social media and yours, certainly, that it it can be a hard sell because you're selling spirituality to atheists and you're selling deconstruction to religious people. And neither of them really want to hear that. Yeah. So it can be it can be a hard sell. But I appreciate any other voice who's in that space doing that work, because I, I think that's where the conversation needs to be. So it's just so lovely to have you on the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you so much. Awesome. Have a great day, my friend. Thanks, guys. Take care. This has been another Almost Awakened episode. Check us out at almostawakened.org, where you can check out past episodes, make a donation to keep this podcast running, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources shared in today's episode. For coaching opportunities or extra support, visit nonsensespirituality.com to meet with certified spiritual director, Brittany Hartman.